Welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best murder she wrote podcast. I'm your co-host Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. We are talking about season three, episode 14, Murder in a Minor Key. Oh boy, where to begin with this episode? (laughs) (laughs) To preface this, when my mom and I are watching the show, which I was just visiting West Virginia recently and we watched a lot of Murder, She Wrote, we both agree that episodes where Jessica's just a bit player are by far our least favorite, and I stand by that judgment. I mean, that's a pretty universal sentiment among Murder, She Wrote fans. I don't think anyone is going to, like, argue back against that. And while this one is entertaining enough, I was just sort of, I gotta be honest, I was quite bored. Well, it's just not a Murder, She Wrote episode, right? Okay, I have a lot of thoughts, but before we get there, so this is Jessica sort of narrating one of her books that she's writing, which is then reenacted by the characters, in which a bunch of nondescript and relatively unimportant and uninteresting young people (laughs) scurry around on a college campus. A bunch of guest stars from the Golden Girls are in this episode, which we'll get to that, which is the best part. I'm a music teacher who's also like basically ripping off his students' work, ends up dead. Fast forward, one of the students who's apparently like a, a law student who is played by Sean Cassidy, who plays the character name is, is Chad, Chad Singer, with his god-awful southern accent, finally deduces that it was the guy's wife the whole time. <laughs> so that's the summary. And where do we go from here? Well, that is a sufficient summary. For a sufficient episode. <laughs> For a sufficient episode. Yeah, I mean, um, I suppose we could talk about the investigation, but I think, you know what, Let's let's just go to the stuff we care about. So the guest stars. Oh my gosh, it is an embarrassment of riches. I think you're right. It's a pretty bland murder. It's a pretty bland investigation. And Jessica's not the one doing the investigating. And I do not understand that choice on the part of the writers. So, you know, it's like, what is there to hook me into this? But what there is to hook me in is like this embarrassment of riches, as you say, of guest stars. Yeah, and I'm just going to go through them just briefly, because Renee Bourgeois would have been enough by himself, who is like one of the most prolific character actors of his generation. He's also just finished Benson at this point. Right, also dearly departed, died a few years ago. Also known as Odo from Deep Space Nine, thereby continuing my headcanon where all the Star Trek actors talk about being on Murder, She Wrote together. He was also the Chef Louis in The Little Mermaid, joining Angela Lansbury as one of the many people to provide voices for Disney characters. Oh, so your Murder, She Wrote cinematic universe is like really expanding here. It is, yep. Um, We also have, as I mentioned, Sean Cassidy. We also have Herb Edelman. No, don't don't skip over Sean Cassidy. Let's give him a second here now. Okay, fine. Go on. Tell the good people who Sean Cassidy is. You tell her. I mean, I don't really know Well, he's the son of Shirley Jones and Jack Cassidy. You know, Partridge family, Shirley Jones. Right. And Jack Cassidy, who is our killer slash writer novelist in the very first episode of Columbo. So he would have worked with Peter Fisher before. And I actually, I love the first episode of Columbo. I think it's like one of the best episodes of TV of all time. But I got to tell you, like for someone who comes from such sort of like entertainment royalty, I find him really unimpressive. And I know he has his own storied career in both music and TV, but... I'm not that impressed by him. I know. I mean, he also has really buggy eyes, so that was kind of distracting, but... I was distracted by his teeth. He's very toothy. Oh, that's, he is very toothy. He's no David Cassidy, I think. Let's just leave it at that. That's true. He also has, as to- as Stewie puts it in the family guy, he has a bad tooth-to-gum ratio. Like, <laughs> it's very distracting. And the southern accent, too. 
Oh, it's awful. Okay, it's well, awful. moving past John Cassidy, who is our lead investigator, we have... We also have Herb Edelman, you know, obviously very famous for playing Stanley Spornak in The Golden Girls. Oh, and he's so much fun to see. I love him. Everybody's favorite, yes. We last saw him in Murder by Appointment Only. Right, and he looks really good with a beard. I gotta say, I'm not usually attracted to Herb Edelman, but he looks really good with a beard, I think. Mm-hmm. He should carry that more... This is his third episode of Murder, She Wrote, and he's going to do seven more. That's pretty great, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm just going to skip to the guest stars that I care about that are Golden Girls, part of the Golden Girls Murder, She Wrote. So you're not going to go to Karen Grassley? That's correct. But you well, can talk you about her. Well, you have to because I just said it. All right. Well, you could tell us what you know about her. Well, our murderer, or as TJ would say, murder S, and then I'd get all huffy about it. But there's something uh, – just to pause, just to pause – I only use that term because I think there's just something lovely and poetic about the phrase, the word murderess. Like, it's just, there's a lovely juiciness to that word that I really like. But go on. Okay. I Okay. I have things to say in response to that, but I won't because it's a podcast. Okay. So anyway, so we have Karen Grassley, who is um, the wife and mom on Little House on the Prairie, which ended in 1982. And she plays Professor Stoneham, our victim's wife, who is ultimately the murderer. We also have George Grizzard, who is Professor Tyler Stoneham, who's the sort of plagiarizer. Mm-hmm. Our victim. Famous for playing George on The Golden Girls. And Jamie, but he hasn't played them yet. That's true. He's also gay in real life. I don't know if you knew that. We, he, we also last saw him in Murder Digs Deep, where we talked about oh, him we did. being yep. gay and we felt his character should have been gay. That's right, because he said something about like when he was in Africa or whatever it was. <laughs> Yeah, wasn't that the one where he wanted Jessica to write his... Yes, it was. Yeah. We also have Scott Jacoby. Very fa- he plays sort of a young aspiring journalist who is Michael Spornak in The Golden Girls. Fun fact for our listeners, my PhD advisor is actually his cousin. Fun fact. Yep, he is related to all the Jacoby brothers. There's like three of them. Uh, his other brother was also in The Golden Girls. Okay, but when did he first play Michael? I actually didn't I write it down. I think it's season two. It might be season three. I have to look. I can't remember right offhand. It's season two or three. It's very early. But he's done. He's so he's done it by this point. I think so. So because I'm just trying to piece together, like, like, did is this casting just coincidental, or was someone like, you know, what we should do since we're not going to have Jessica in this episode, what we should do is stack this episode with people from the Golden Girls. That's going to make people watch. Yes. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, because we also have Dinah Manoff, oh. very famous oh. for playing. Well, she's connected to the Golden Girls, too, isn't she? I'm thinking she of her because I adore As her soap. from Soap. Mm-hmm. Right. Which also has a connection to the Golden Girls since it's also created it by- It did. Susan Harris. Susan Harris. And anyway, she's also going to go on to Empty Nest next year, which, of course, takes place next door to the Golden Girls. It sure does. So, you know, those are the only ones that I care about. So- you know, that in itself was worthy. And as I said to Bridget, like, I would have been just as happy if they had just made this episode focus on uh, Dinah Manoff's character, who is Jenny Coppersmith. Like, if they had just made her the sleuth, I think it would have been a stronger episode. Oh, because then we would have had, like, a, like a baby Jessica? Yeah. I mean, she even has red hair, right? Right. And she's very charismatic. And, like, I think she's mm-hmm. just a really great TV actress. Like, she really mm-hmm. nails that kind of, like acting style and i'm sure they probably did it because cassidy also you know is pretty famous even He's by this supposed point to be the big famous one but it's like i would much rather have just watched an episode with dinah like i just I, that's a really interesting point and i hadn't thought of but what i did notice was that um she has these really delightful little moments where she's like am i a lady detective or what and it's really cute and confident and charming in a way that reminds me of um francesca annis doing 
Tuppence mm-hmm. in the 1980s uh, Tommy and Tuppence TV show that didn't last for very long. Because they're the least interesting of Christie's Just- fictional detectives, but anyway. <laughs> no, I actually really like that iteration with James Warwick. Um but I think there's something about them both that is just like it's very charismatic and it's very mm-hmm. and they're very beautiful and charming and young and it's just very easy to like watch them and be like yes you are a great lady detective except they kept undercutting everything that she did to advance the investigation with something from him or like she's the one who pieces together some critical bit of information and then doesn't understand what it all adds up to and he has to explain it to her. And oh, I just I kept being like, Why uh, are you guys doing this to her? Just let her be a detective. I guess it's this is the backlash era where young women aren't encouraged to like do anything meaningful and just, you know, accept their subservient role in patriarchy. I mean, I think we could, you know, if you want to go down that road, like they're living in sin, their words. Um and He's training to be a lawyer and she's training to be a social worker and she feels very concerned about things like structural inequality. We learn in like her first line of dialogue, which like it just totally makes me love her, of course. But like she's going to be financially dependent on this guy for the rest of her life, right? She's going to be a social worker making like – this is the 80s. She's going to make like $20,000 a year. Uh, so, you know, cutting down the women. Yeah, which is so, I mean, that's part of the reason, while I don't particularly like this episode, I do find it interesting in terms of its gender politics, especially vis-a-vis the rest of the, of Murder, She Wrote, which is so, you know, if not explicitly, implicitly feminist in its orientation, whereas mm-hmm. this one, and I think that's partially because, you know, it's young people, so it's, by nature, like, it's gender politics are going to be feel more Different. contemporary. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the th- the things that's most glaringly obvious from Jessica's absence is that feminist spirit that she embodies just by her presence and by Angela Lansbury's gravitas and her sort of charisma as a star. Yeah, well, Lansbury, I think as Jessica brings a sort of a cultural feminism, right? Like right. we're not supposed to think of it as feminism. It's not radical. She doesn't say things like down with the patriarchy. We don't, she doesn't disparage men. She doesn't burn her bra. Um, but it's rather, it's through her grace and her poise and all of her accomplishments and the fact that she proves men wrong when they undercut her that we see this sort of feminist icon emerge. And I think among these young people, it's a much more sort of impassioned and explicit ideology that we see going on. Like we even see the campus Right. You know, the campus has a big demonstration and people are screaming and chanting. And so it's it's like because they're young, we're supposed to think that they're just much more explicitly politically engaged in a way. Talk about a hangover from the 60s. Like, you know, like you can still <laughs> sense that kind of Reagan era skepticism about campus organizing. I well, yeah. And I just have to ask, like, these are supposed to be undergrads. Yeah, like, this. First of all, they live in an apartment. I shout out to the set designers. They have like a bookcase that's made out of like some two by fours and cinder block. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that seems like people who can't afford furniture yet. But like they live in this apartment. Um, they're very mature. I know people in the 80s grew up faster. But he's <laughs> he's like running around solving a murder and the police just sort of like let him do things and they let the suspect out of jail to do this reenactment. And I'm just like, Aren't you guys like twenty? Don't you have class? Like, like you're a law student. Like what are you doing? Like you're you're, so, you're trying to be a lawyer, and like you're, you're like you're futzing around with this investigation. Not to mention, like, how do they even just know how to do any of this? Like my students who are twenty, bless them, don't know how to like, you know, tie their shoes. How do these people know how to solve a murder? 
I mean, as you say, people just matured faster. They did. I mean, maybe it was maybe it was the heat or maybe it was the gin to paraphrase Blanche and oh. Dorothy from the Golden Girls. But we are we in their defense though, we are supposed to believe that they're extremely emotionally motivated because it's like their best friend right. who's being accused of the murder. So this doesn't just come out of nowhere. Right. And I think that what see, this is what I think you're identifying is in what is my struggle as a viewer, is because with most murder mysteries, like there's some kind of figure who serves as the sort of focal point of the investigation. And it makes sense that they would do so. Like we know that Jessica is a good investigator because she writes murder mysteries. And so like, Mm -hmm. there's a built-in mythology. There's a built-in like understanding of who this character is. Poirot is an, is an independent uh, investigator or private investigator. Who who used to be a police officer. Who used to be a police officer. Mm -hmm. You know, even Miss Marple is a small town lady who, you know, has powers of observation. Like there's always something to ground them, but we don't, and really aren't given enough of these characters to make, at least to make me believe that they're capable of conducting this investigation. <laughs> and I sort of doubt right. their credentials because I'm like, okay, so you're a law That's student, what but what do you know about investigations? Clearly nothing. Well, I think we're just supposed to believe he's smart, right? And he's figure stuff out Ugh, I guess, but that's just not enough for I me. Know. That's just, and I mean, it's not enough for me either. And he's not that like charismatically compelling to watch do this investigation. Right. Exactly. Like, I mean, it, yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I think that that's, and it's so glaring because it's from a depart, such a radical departure from anything we've seen with murder. She wrote, and like, mm-hmm. there's been no mention of who these characters are. Like, maybe if Jessica had before mentioned to her, you know, her intrepid detective that investigates yeah. murders or whatever, that would have mm-hmm. made more sense. That would have given me something mm-hmm. to ground. But these characters seem to come out like sui generis. They're just like out of the nowhere. Like, Did you really just like, drop sui generis in our podcast? I did. I'm sorry. I needed. Wow. I, I couldn't help myself. Um, <laughs> but I was like, because I needed but, it was. It, I needed something to convey what I was trying to get to. But I had a similar thought, Teach, because um, having Chad as the main investigator and Dinah Manoff's Jenny as his backup sort of led me to wonder: um, Does Jessica always have different sleuths? Does she yeah. have a signature character like Christy had Marble and Poirot? We never hear that on the series. Who are her characters? Who are her sleuths? Yep. And so I find that just very, like, you know, difficult to ground. Because it just made me not care about these characters. Like, I just didn't care enough. I didn't care about the villain. I didn't care about the protagonist. I didn't care about the murder victim. I didn't care about the investigators. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I just didn't feel myself involved in a way that I think I probably should have if this was going to really work. Now, we do hear her at the end saying that she is contemplating a sequel with these characters. That's like sort of our only in to what her universe, her universe is. Now, I will say that if this, you know, to build on what we were saying about the actors and the and the prevalence of their, you know, presence, I will say that they, like, that's what makes it interesting. Like, George Grizzard, although he's the murder victim, is really good as a villain. Like, he's very, like, arrogant and haughty and completely unapologetic about basically you know plagiarizing his students composition he's stealing his students music and selling sells and then it. He, he sells it to broadway makes a shit ton of money lives in a house no professor would ever live in unless they were like in engineering and uh certainly not a music professor and he's shameless about it yep he has sort of no sense of like remorse at all that he's done this yep and apparently is having secret assignations in, like, south of the city or whatever it is. 
which is part of the motivation for the murder. But yeah. let's, I mean, I want to also just talk about the reenactment. Like, I don't mean to just... Let, yeah, I was going to say, we need to talk about this because it's a huge part of the episode. Right, I don't want to pile on this episode because, you know, I mean, as I said, the, the acting is fun. It's very... You know, Scott Jacoby is adorable. Oh, I would love... Never mind. What I do you think he's adorable? Oh, I do. I love him. I love everything about him. I think that mustache is adorable. I'm just like the mustache just doesn't do it for me. It doesn't all. do it for my boyfriend either. But I just love him with that mustache. It's just something- and the fluffy hair. Oh, it's so sexy. Anyway, I have a thing for cute Jewish boys. But you don't like Magnum. Oh no, I'm I love so no, confused. no. I love Magnum. It's the same mustache. No, no, no. I love Magnum. What are you talking about? My mom hates Magnum. I love Magnum. I thought you didn't find him attractive. Oh no, 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 no. I would. I. I would totally let Magnum bang me. Oh, no question. Like, Oh, yeah. You did say that. I'm the one who said I didn't think he was attractive. Oh, yeah. I mean, I totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-mm. Okay. I would worship Magnum. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Wait, speaking of attractive, before we get to the reenactment, I think Dinah Manoff is adorable. She is. I think she's very pretty. I think she's adorable in this. I love all of her little choices as an actor. And um, do you notice they dress her in pink in every single scene? Mm-hmm. She has something pink on. And there's one where she's wearing, like, a pink sweatband, like, around her head. And then a cardigan mm-hmm. pushed up to her elbows with a teal tank top tucked into, like, parachute pants for some bizarre reason. And she's just, like, sitting on the kitchen counter playing guitar. This is not what I would wear to sit on the kitchen counter and play guitar. I mean, I'm having fun Im- imagining Bridget Keys sitting on the counter playing guitar. Like, that is a very funny well, image. I don't sit on the counter and I don't play guitar. So. It's, the play, it's the playing guitar for me. Like that. Bridget oh, Keys I took guitar strum- lessons because I wanted to be a rock star. But you know what? Um, my instructor told me I had to get used to having calloused fingertips. And I was like, I'm out. That's it. That's the end of guitar for me. I don't want calloused fingertips. Everything that you just said is like peak Bridget Keys. Like that is just <laughs> peak keys right there. PK right there. Anyway, um, and I did, before we pile on the reenactment, I also just love Rene Bourgeois. Like I just find him just be, he is just he so has much. very attractive eyes as well. Like we mentioned that with Tony Dow in the last episode. I just. He, oh, I don't think he's very cute at all. Yeah, I think, well, you know, he's not supposed to look attractive, right? He's a character actor. He's supposed to look goofy, but I think he has very like attractive eyes. And, you know, like, I know him, of course, most, I mean, I grew up watching Benson, but mostly I grew up watching Deep Space Nine, and he has, like, oh, stuff right. plastered all over his face, and I'm like, why are you covering up this guy? Yeah, I mean, he he's unique looking, shall we say. He's also just really- Oh, he's fantastic. He's also just, like, he's a great character actor. Like, he is one of those people yeah. who was born to be a character actor. Like, he was just- Yeah. Because of his features, because of the the flexibility his of his voice, grizzly voice. Yep, he has a voice that was vo- born for voice acting too, which most character actors do a lot of voice acting too. So he's the sort of like that's the kind of star text he brings with him. So he is, um, he, his character's name is Papazian, and he's, um, and by the way, the actor will be back next season, so that's fun. But he is uh, like the assistant department head of music. I have so many questions about how this university works. I do too. And he doesn't get along with um, Stoneham, our victim. We hear them fighting the night of the murder, so he could have been one of the suspects. And then, like, the fun part, though, is that now that this guy's dead, they're like, oh, well, you're going to be the department chair. And you just, like, you see him like, oh, this 
this kind of worked out for me. As if anyone really wants to be department chair. Talk about a misunderstanding of academia. <laughs> they did that in school for scandal, too. Remember, people are, like, murdering each other to be the department chair. Like, like, do you I have, don't think you understand to... what department chair actually does. Or how, how, like, nobody, literally nobody ever wants to be a chair. No. Like, no university has anyone been clamoring <laughs> to take on the position of chair. Like, usually you would murder people to make them be chair. Like... <laughs> But to avoid I love being his reactions. Chair. I just love that, like, the way that he plays this, like, hey, this murder kind of worked out for me. This is great, but I have to pretend, like, I'm really sad about it. You know, I have to, like, downplay it. Right. He's also really mad because Stoneham has been, like, has basically, once again, plagiarized and isn't going to give mm-hmm. him credit on the book that he wrote. What? Wrote. It, I'm confused about it. It's like a musical encyclopedia? I don't even know. Like, as if that's okay. going to make any money. Like, come on now. Like, <laughs> Well, that was the thing. He's like, yeah, he's like, you'll get your returns. I'm like, what returns? Like, what? the best he's getting is a CV line item, and you took his name off it, so he's not going to get that. Right. It's like, again, TV land has a very, the murder she wrote, <laughs> TV universe has a very skewed sense of how academia works. Mm, it's true. TJ and I could tell you guys some stuff, you guys. Oh, yeah. Um, one other thing to each, this is apropos of nothing, but, um, when the students are having the protest outside the music building that night, the night of the murder, it's very confusing what they're protesting against. Cause if you listen to snippets, it's like it changes. Like at one confused. point they're angry at the administration and another point they're protesting some company. It's very confusing. But one little bit of prop that is fun is that somebody is carrying a sign that says Devereaux must go. Oh, this has to be. A, Isn't that wild? That has to be. I mean, they had to have been playing on the Golden Girls connection. Like, there's just no, there's too many coincidences. I know, but but George Grizzard hadn't played on the Golden Girls. Sure, yet. but I mean, just the other, I mean, just the other connections, the Herb Edelman just connection. A, I, like, it's weird, right? Yeah. Like, something was going on in the writer's room. Yeah, yeah, yeah has to be. In the prop department. Yep. So let's talk about this reenactment. Okay. Because, like, the reenactment. Ugh, it's way too long to start with. Like it goes on so long. I turned to Aaron, my my boyfriend, and I was like, "They clearly ran out of things to do with this episode, so they're like, let's make this very co- long and convoluted reenactment." And Bridget knows where this is going. It's not a full reenactment either. It like makes, it no, makes sense no sense because they have people there who weren't there that I night, like, and they're picking up phones and not to not to bring up. We're off to kill the wizard again. We're off to kill the wizard. It has total. We're off to kill well, the once wizard. Again, I'm like, what the hell does any of this mean? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> because they do this whole thing where people are calling the office, and the and then there's another extension in a different room, and the guy who's accused of the murder is watching the phone lines light up, and that's how he remembers. Like, oh, there wasn't a call that night, or whatever. And I'm like. All I'm thinking when I'm watching this is is um, this is we're off to kill the wizard again, and TJ's gonna flip out. <laughs> Bridget knows me all too well, and indeed, I was just left thinking, "What I?" It makes it's so weird. I'm just like, I, I, and then they have Dinah Manoff running around with like a stopwatch. I, I was like, "What is that?" I was. It like, didn't make any. We didn't need that. It didn't make any sense. It doesn't have to be in real time if you're just looking for the phones to light up. Yes, I was just like, what? And I mean, I was just, it was not just that. I was just like, why is this going on so long? Like, and the policeman has, has dragged along the suspect. I'm not letting the suspect out of my mind. He has to say that like 10 times before they even get into the building. And why isn't he handcuffed? And why aren't they handcuffed together? Like, why is there only one cop? Why did they let a undergrad law student 
who's his best friend, let him out of jail to come do this reenactment that basically only hinges upon watching in a closet that anybody could have done. TJ, (laughs) TJ. (laughs) Uh, Yes. I mean, the the motivation for once makes sense. And like, you know, I understand why the the wife would finally have just snapped after living with this abusive husband who I am in my head canon has been having a series of gay affairs. I mean, the evidence is all there. He's selling music to Broadway, going off to secret assignations to the south of the city. You know, I mean, it's all there. Like, it's you're right. It's, you're totally it's right. It's clear that he's having affairs with men, and she's just like, I can't take it anymore. And then she she murders him in a fit of you know righteous. But why would range. she do that if he's making all this money and they live in this giant house? I don't know because she's having. A, isn't she ha- also having an affair with that? She's having an affair with another professor. Yeah, so it's just like I mean. That part of it could have but been... But that professor probably doesn't steal stuff and sell it to Broadway. So that professor probably doesn't have nice stuff. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, I was just like, I have so many... I'm left with more questions than answers by the end of this <laughs> it's episode. So dumb. <laughs> it's so dumb. And I have to say, I love Jessica, but if this is what she's writing, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, how is she making millions she if this is the kind of half-baked material that she's writing? Like, underdeveloped characters, plot threads that go nowhere, resolutions that make no sense. Like My favorite part, TJ, is at um, right before the reenactment, when we have this sort of aha moment when Chad figures out what's happening. He's like, I, th- I know who did it. And then we cut to Jessica, because we keep cutting back to Jessica at home, right? And we cut to Jessica going... Chad figured it out. Have you figured it out yet? Like, she wants us to solve along. Uh, and I'm just was... like, I don't know. My dog is barking. I don't care enough about this episode. Like, I just can't be bothered to guess. Just get through the commercial break and just tell me. I, don't, I can't be bothered to guess. Yep. I almost groaned out loud just because that was so after school especially i was just like oh why why did you make angela ansbury say this like she looks pained i can see the pain behind her eyes as she's saying I'm doubtful like, she's like wow last episode all i had to do was lay in bed and this time i just show up for like 40 like, minutes I, and film this no, stuff this is great i think what she's thinking like i did main <laughs> here i am <laughs> i have a tony <laughs> you're making me wear I did fuzzy miss- slippers <laughs> I did Mrs. Lovett and Mrs. Eislin, and here I am. I played Eglantine Price, and here I am asking my audience if they solve this murder mystery. Anyway, I, like I said, I could see the, I could see a little bit of her spirit die in her eyes as she asked, "Did you solve it too?" Well, let's talk about those cuts to her because, um, you know, they're interesting. So yes, she. We open in um, Cabot Cove in the world's fastest zoom into Cabot Cove in her house and. The whole point is that she's got the galleys for this book and she's going to spend tonight proofreading it. So all of her material takes place in the space of one night as she's like reviewing the book. And she tells us she had to slip into something comfortable and it's this purpley navy plaid dress with a necktie. And honestly, it just looks like a dress. It doesn't look comfortable. But anyway, um, and then at one point she's sitting down by the fire and crosses her legs and we see that she's wearing those fuzzy high-heeled slippers that Blanche always wears and that are sort of iconic in like sexy 80s things. Uh, and she looks at us because she knows we're going to wonder and says, Grady gave them to me. 
Yeah, there are some nice touches with those, like, interludes. Those are probably, I'm like, I looked forward to them except for the cheesy. Have you solved it, too? Other than that, I looked forward to those because it's nice to see Jessica. Yes, I mean, one of them, we get her with her little yellow bird. Yep. So there you go, your picture of Dorian Gray reference. You know, Teach, uh, in season six, Lansbury actually had her contract negotiated so that she would only appear in half the episodes. And the others are these standalone episodes that sometimes are bookended with her opening and closing. Um, And this is the first time that she does that so far. And we're not going to see it again for a long time. And I, I have not been able to uncover like what the motivation was. Maybe someone out there who's listening knows the trivia behind this. But between this and Crossed Up, something was going on because she's not involved. And I think that's really weird. Was she like not available to film? Was she actually injured? Was something going on with her family? Right. She needs some vacation days. Something's going on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very perplexing. It's really perplexing. And if if it wasn't a conflict with Lansbury, if this is just something the writers thought we'd all enjoy. Boy, were they wrong. (laughs) Well, that seems like a good place to end. I ain't got much more to milk out of this episode. You can't get blood from a stone, as they say. So, um, can't turn this, this sow's ear into a silk purse to keep going with. Oh my God. Okay. Just stop. <laughs> Just stop, Bridget <laughs> says. Anyway, <laughs> so I guess that's all we have for the Cabot Cove Gazette. So, as always, I'm your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And we will talk to you next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons License. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.